Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful, soothing jets, and all your stress seems to melt away, like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better, too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. This podcast may discuss topics graphic in nature and possibly triggering to survivors. We value the safety and well-being of all of our listeners. So please practice personal discretion. Now, enjoy the show. Hey, I'm Paige. And I'm Natalie. We're the hosts of the Murder Diaries podcast. We bonded over tacos and true crime after we matched on Bumble BFF. You know, like any normal millennial using an app to meet new friends. Every Thursday, we upload a new episode. In each episode of The Murder Diaries, we tell true crime one story at a time. One week, it's my turn. And the next week, it's mine. You still think it's in my head, but I'm walking with the dead. Before we get started on today's episode, I want to give a quick shout out and a thank you to three of our listeners, Crystal, Ames, and Zoe. They bought us some coffee on Buy Me a Coffee and it helps so much. So we appreciate it. Thank you again. This week, we're doing something a little bit different, but I think you're going to like it. This case that we're going to be bringing to you is a case that when the Murder Diaries was first born... Natalie and I recorded. That recording has since been retired. So we're going to bring this case out of retirement and we are going to re-record it right here and get it on the Murder Diaries feed this week. And that is the case of the Pettit family murders, also known as the Cheshire murders. Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful, soothing jets, and all your stress seems to melt away, like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better, too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. William and Jennifer Pettit met in the 1980s while Jennifer was working as a pediatric oncology nurse at Children's Hospital in Pittsburgh, and William was a third-year medical student. He was doing some rounds there. Jennifer was born September 26th, 1958 in New Jersey, and she also grew up in Pennsylvania as well. She was known as a beauty, but more importantly, she was remarked by her sister as a winner. Her sister goes on to give an example, and she uses the example of school plays. When Jennifer would go out for the lead in a school play, she would land the role. William was born September 24th, 1956 in Connecticut. He attended Dartmouth for his undergrad, and he attended medical school at UPITT's School of Medicine. He later became one of the top endocrinologists in the world and was really renowned Um, and known as an expert specifically with diabetes. Jennifer and William were married April 13th, 1985. They continued their medical careers at Yale New Haven Hospital. And that is before 
Jennifer then took a position as the school nurse at Cheshire Academy in Cheshire, Connecticut. This is how they ended up raising their two girls in the idyllic colonial bedroom community of Cheshire, Connecticut. Their two daughters were named Michaela and Haley. Haley was born October 15th, 1989. At the time that this case takes place, she was 17 going on 18. She had just graduated from Ms. Porter's School for Girls. This is a very posh high school, and it's actually the same school that Jackie Kennedy Onassis attended and Gloria Vanderbilt. That really puts into perspective their status and station in life because those are two pretty big names. Yeah, it was definitely a very upper middle class to upper class lifestyle. Miss Porter's school was no joke, and Haley really excelled there. She was a straight-A student as well as an athlete. She was a three-year varsity player for cross-country, basketball, and crew. Two of those three seasons, she was captain of the basketball and the crew teams. Furthermore, she was elected to this kind of senior leadership position, which was the Athletic Association head. Haley was not unlike her mother. Jennifer, growing up, was the captain of her drill team, a member of the National Thespian Society, and a member of her homecoming court. So Haley is a lot like her mother, just enjoying the social aspects and the achievement aspects of school. For all of her accomplishments, Haley had landed herself a spot at Dartmouth in the fall. I probably don't need to tell most of you this, but Dartmouth is an Ivy League. So that's a really big deal. And she was going to continue her athletic career there where she would be part of the Big Greens rowing team. And she also took a page from her dad's book by attending Dartmouth because that was his alma mater. So really she's following in both of her wildly successful parents' footsteps. She really was. Uh, William was class of 1978 at Dartmouth. So I'm sure that that was really special to their family. Now let's talk about Michaela. Michaela was born November 17th, 1995. She was 11 when this case takes place, going on 12. Michaela was a busy little girl who enjoyed playing and cooking. She also really loved animals and had recently become a vegetarian. I relate to this so much because when I was 10, I gave up eating mammals. Of course, everything we just went through about this family makes them seem like the perfect family that like everybody would want to be a part of. But Every family has their battles, as we know. And one of the battles that the Pettits were up against was that Jennifer suffered from multiple sclerosis. The family didn't let that get them down, though. They made it a mission to help as much as possible within the multiple sclerosis community. Haley actually received accolades for her efforts in the MS community. At one point, she raised over $50,000 as a spokesperson within MS society. She always kept the accomplishments like this to herself, though. She was really modest about it. Community members and friends echo this in one of the documentaries that I watched, which is listed in the resource portion of the show notes. They just echo that she was modest about this. She never bragged or really talked much about it. She just wanted to help, and that's what she did. So now we have a picture of what this family was like, the Pettit family in Cheshire, Connecticut. That will take us to the day that changed this family forever, which is July 22nd, 2007. As I mentioned, Michaela loved cooking. 
and she wanted to continue to work those skills. And on this night, she wanted to make dinner for the family. So Jennifer takes her to the local stop and shop grocery store to buy what she needs. They arrive around 7, 7.30. Uh, Michaela can actually be seen on surveillance footage at 7.37 inside the store. They didn't realize it, but a man had spotted them in the parking lot on their way in. He followed them into the store, back out of the store, and all the way home. As Jennifer and Michaela arrive home with their stalker behind them, the stalker takes note of this little bit more secluded home and how it's big and beautiful and looks like one he might want to rob later. Now, that's it for the stalker at that moment. Around 8.30, the family eats dinner. They watch the show Army Wives and Jennifer, Michaela, and Haley all head to bed. Dr. Pettit, on the other hand, stayed downstairs. He had plans to study the medical journals that he wanted to catch up on and... While doing so, he fell asleep on the couch in the living room. Around 3 a.m., now July 23rd, 2007, the stalker returns back. And this time, he returns with an accomplice. The two men enter the Pettit's home through the cellar doors that are outside and lead into the basement. They were masked and armed with a baseball bat and a rifle. Now, Natalie, we're no experts on cellar doors because we were born and raised in Southern California without cellar doors or a basement. But I do want to do my best to explain and paint a picture of what these doors are to you and to other listeners that might be unfamiliar as well. So for inquiring minds, cellar doors are these big double doors that are usually butted right up against a house that when you open them, they've got stairs that lead down into a storage area and the basement. So with that, when these men entered through those cellar doors, they were able to get into the basement and then into the Pettit home. As they entered the home and walked into the living room, they were surprised to see a sleeping Dr. Pettit. As I mentioned, he had fallen asleep on the couch reading his medical journals. In order to subdue him, they hit him over the head with a baseball bat that they had found outside. They took him and tied him up in the basement. After that, the men go upstairs. This is when they find Jennifer and Michaela, the youngest daughter, asleep in the master bedroom. They wake them up and they take Michaela to her room. They wake up and subdue Haley in her room. All three pettit ladies were tied to their beds by their wrists and ankles. Pillowcases were also put over each of their heads. It's just an absolute nightmare. They were separated. They weren't able to communicate easily with one another. And I just like, I cannot imagine how absolutely terrified they would have been. It's unbelievable. With each of the Pettit family members subdued, the two men ransacked the home. They were looking for anything valuable, but they were disappointed when they didn't find a safe or anything of really high value. That was until they found the bank ledger. Once they found the bank ledger, they knew exactly how much money the Pettits really had. They wanted some of that money for themselves, and they decided that they would have Jennifer take them to the bank in the morning so that she could withdraw cash and give it to them. The main hurdle in this plan that the masked men had was that the bank didn't open up until 9 a.m. So the Pettits and the masked men would have to wait it out. While they wait, the intruders decide that they're going to take two gas tanks to the gas station and fill them up. And they do this around 4.30 in the morning. When they returned, they checked on each of the Pettit family members. They allowed Michaela to have some water. 
They gave a towel to a really badly dazed Dr. Pettit, who was in and out of consciousness at this time. And they untied Haley so that she could use the restroom down the hall. Time ticks forward and the sun rises. It's now after 8 a.m. and it's a Monday. This means that Dr. Pettit would be expected at work soon. The men know this and they force Jennifer to call in sick for him that morning. The person who fielded this call really didn't think much of it and just said, okay, I hope he feels better. And the morning went on. Around 9 a.m., one of the intruders takes Jennifer to the bank and the other stays behind with the girls and Dr. Pettit. Jennifer had strict instructions not to say anything about the hostage situation to the bank teller or that the girls would be killed. Once inside the bank, Jennifer writes on the deposit slip, quote, I need to take $15,000 out of my savings account in cash. I have to have the money because my family is being held hostage. If the police are notified, my family will be killed. The bank teller grabs the store manager and Jennifer shows them a picture of her daughters and she begs for the money and help, but reminds them to not call the police because she thinks that with what the men have told her, if she gets this money and gives it to them, her girls aren't going to die. They can be let go. This is what they wanted. We can move on. So she doesn't want to ruffle any feathers. She wants to get this done and get safe again. Of course, when somebody's taking out this large amount of money, that's going to spark some interest in the bank and they're going to need to figure out what's going on. But the store manager says that she knew from one mother to another that Jennifer was telling the truth, that her family was in trouble. However, Mary Lyons, the store manager of that Bank of America, did call 911 anyways around 920. Jennifer was still there as she was making the call. Mary peeked through the blinds of her office and she could actually see the man in the car. She also then saw that Jennifer was leaving the bank around 9.23 while she was still on the phone with 911. My name is Mary Lyons. I'm the banking center manager at Bank of America. We have a lady who is in our bank right now who says that her husband and children are being held at their house. She's getting $15,000 to bring out to them that if the police are told, they will kill the children and the husband. The people are in a car outside the bank. Her name is Jennifer Pettit, P-E-T-I-T. She is petrified. She wasn't going to call the police, but I came in my office and I did. Okay, she still is in the bank? She, I think she's walking out now. She's walking out now. Okay, Jennifer Pettit, 300 Sorghum Mill Road. Yeah. She's being held. Her, her husband. husband and family is being held. Yes. Yeah. After that 911 call, police arrived at the bank, not the Pettit home. They had missed Jennifer by two minutes. The reason they arrived at the bank and not the Pettit home is because they were holding on to this notion that maybe Jennifer was complicit in some bank scheme. You know, the deposit slip was alarming and the story that she told bankers just seemed really unreal. To top it all off, the account was in William's name, not hers alone. So it really just caused some alarm bells to go off. Eventually, they sorted out what had happened at the bank and they figured out where they needed to be. Meanwhile, Jennifer arrives back home at 9.29 a.m. Police arrived in the neighborhood just minutes later. And after surveilling the situation, a SWAT team had been called in because by now they had realized that this was indeed a hostage situation. 
Around the same time, Dr. Pettit is regaining full consciousness and he gets his hands free. As he's doing this, he can hear Jennifer screaming from where he is in the basement. He crawls and gets out through those same cellar doors that the men had entered earlier that morning. As he exits, he's crawling and he screams for his neighbor. He was so badly beaten that he was almost unrecognizable for a moment to that neighbor. Police rushed to the neighbor and Dr. Pettit. Dr. Pettit screamed about his family being held hostage in the house. And police are wondering, whoa, okay, who are you? Do you own this house? Are you one of the intruders? What is going on? They figure out he's Dr. Pettit. They turn their heads to the house just as flames erupt. It's now about 9.58 a.m. The intruders bolt out of the front door and they jump in to the Pettit's SUV. They hit a police car and a roadblock, which disabled the vehicle. It's not until the intruders are apprehended after this failed escape attempt that the fire department is allowed to work on the fire and get anybody who was left in the house, which was Haley, Michaela, and Jennifer. By this point, though, charred remains is what is left of the Pettit home. Dr. Pettit was put into an ambulance and was taken to the hospital with no idea as to what has happened to his wife and daughters. When he wakes back up in the hospital later, he is then notified that his wife and daughters have all three passed in the fire. The two masked men, now known as Joshua Komosarjevsky and Stephen Hayes, were in police custody because remember their escape attempt was failed. So they were caught right there. Josh was 27 and Stephen 44. They had rekindled this friendship from the halfway house a few days before they broke into the Pettit home. Josh wanted money and the two agreed to burglarize. That's when Josh parked outside the stop and shop and waited to find shoppers that might fit who he was looking to rob. Josh references saying that he saw the mother and daughter duo walk into the stop and shop. He noticed that they were driving a really nice car. And that's when he decided to follow them into the store. And as we know, he then followed them to their home as well. Josh goes on to say that at around 10 p.m. July 22nd, that that's when he met up with Stephen Hayes. In interrogations, Josh says that Stephen noticed the police officer when they had first arrived in the neighborhood, and that's when he actually strangled Jennifer before the fire had even started. Josh also explains that this is when he and Stephen noticed that Dr. Pettit had gotten out of the basement through the cellar doors, and they knew that they were in hot water and that it was moments before police were going to be arriving. And that's when they decided to go ahead and pour gas on the kitchen floor and around the house and light a match to burn the house down. Police went through Josh's phone. This is when they noticed some really disturbing stuff. He has documentation of his assaults on Michaela. In one of his interviews, he calls Michaela KK, which absolutely disgusts me because one of my best friend's little nieces, that's her nickname. And it's a family nickname, much like it was for Michaela. So it's just kind of like, how dare you, you know? An autopsy would later confirm the assault of Michaela and that both she and Haley had died from smoke inhalation. Authorities think that he had spotted Michaela at the stop and shop and that he was more interested in her than anything else. So total predator. This crime really upset the town and rightfully so. And there were a couple of things that were being questioned. One is where were 
police during the 33 minutes that had elapsed from Jennifer being at the bank until when the house erupted in flames. The other is Mary Lyons told the 911 dispatcher that Jennifer was leaving the bank. So why did they arrive there first? Now, we know that this is because police felt that there may be some kind of scheme going on and that they needed to check in at the bank first to make sure everything was okay there. Another issue that has been criticized in this case is that the police chief had told all units not to approach the house until he was there. So any of the police officers that arrived at the scene were not allowed to go into the home until he was there. A final item that was criticized in this case is that the SWAT team had a delay because they didn't have their bulletproof vests with them. Dr. Pettit had come out of those cellar doors just before 10 a.m., and that's just when the house was about to erupt into flames as well, which puts police officers there for 30 whole minutes without having ever entered the home. This case just has a lot of would've, could've, should've. Michaela, Haley, and Jennifer had a combined memorial service. And what is absolutely heart-wrenching is that Dr. Pettit wrote and read the eulogy at that memorial service. Three years after Jennifer, Michaela, and Haley lost their lives, the trial started, September 2010. Stephen and Josh had separate trials. Uh, first came Stephen's, then Josh's a year later. Both men were sentenced to death. Dr. Pettit testified in both trials and was a voice for his family. To complicate things more, capital punishment, the death penalty, was overturned in Connecticut in 2012. In 2015, the Connecticut Supreme Court ruled that the death penalty was unconstitutional and banned executions for the inmates that had already been on death row. So it gets overturned for future cases in 2012. And now in 2015, people like Stephen and Joshua that were on death row are no longer going to have death sentences. So their sentences were commuted and they both have six life sentences without parole. Dr. Pettit is now pursuing a political career and he is serving as a representative for the state of Connecticut. He did remarry and he has a son. His name is William III, which I think is adorable. Attorneys for Joshua were seeking a new trial and appealed to the courts. In April of this year, 2021, his appeal was finally denied. The Pettit Home and Murder Site is now a memorial garden. It's located at 300 Sorghum Mill Road in Cheshire, Connecticut. The flowers, called Four O'Clocks, were Michaela's favorite, and they are now officially named the State of Connecticut's Children's Flower. That happened in 2015. In the show notes, I linked an article with pictures of the original memorial. However, the garden... Um, has been renovated. It just completed renovation around September of 2020. Neighbors are quoted saying that they were excited for the revamp of the memorial site. And they mentioned that to this day, many come to the memorial to sit, reflect, and honor Jennifer Haley and Michaela Pettit. That's where we'll leave this week's episode. Until our next episode, you know where to find us at the Murder Diaries Pod on Instagram, at the Murder Diaries Pod at gmail.com, and TheMurderDiariesPodcast.com. And if you haven't already, go ahead and rate, review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It helps us keep the good content flowing.
Your five stars mean everything. And until then, stay safe. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.